Okay, so I feel freshly prepared for this talk, just having come off two weeks of our IBD service at Mount Sinai, where I think we saw between six and eight acute severe patients in the last two weeks. So I don't know if it's like that in Texas, but definitely in New York, we're seeing a lot of this. So what I want to do today is really give you a practical management guide for how to treat acute severe UC, really focusing on the beginning of the hospitalization, because that's where we set set the course for the patient. And those decisions we make on day one, day four, really are going to determine if the patient's going to fly or they're going to fail. So we'll talk about those management decisions on day one and day four. We'll review the available rescue medical therapies, including optimal utilization, which Marla alluded to. And then we'll talk about the indications for surgery. So True Love and Wits made a classification scheme over you know, 1955, which still holds true for the most part today. About 15 to 25% of patients are going to present with a severe, severe, acute severe hospitalization at some point in their ulcerative colitis history, many of them at the disease onset. And we can use these simple criteria to sort of decide who are the ones we need to admit to the hospital and have more concern for. So if you have patients who have a stool frequency over 6 to 10 times per day, that's concerning. Having blood in their stool more than 50% of the time, having signs of systemic toxicity like fever, tachycardia, anemia, elevated inflammatory markers. These are the people, when you see that in totality, you have to raise your eyebrows and say, I may need to put them in the hospital. Some other indications for admission may be having venous thrombosis, which is an indicator of severe disease, infection, or medication-related adverse events. So I want to talk about day one management, uh, breaking it down into diagnosis, preparation and medication management. And I really feel like this day one is the most critical time point for the patient because it sets the course for the hospitalization. And any delays in doing any of these steps in day one can lead to delays in their therapy later in the hospitalization. So when the patient hits the door, the ER is usually going to order the basic things for you, whether it be CBC, metabolic profile, but they don't always order the inflammatory markers. And so this came up earlier in the day when we were talking about biomarkers, and it's really important to get that baseline C-reactive protein for the patient when they present, because we're going to use that as a non-invasive marker of their response to therapy throughout the hospitalization. Additionally, you want to get some sort of abdominal imaging. Usually an abdominal x-ray is good enough to rule out any dilation, but you can consider a CT scan in cases where patients have fever, if you have a bandemia on their CBC, if they have distension that makes you worry about toxic megacolon. And again, the goal here is really to identify triggers for flare and assess their disease severity on day one. Next, we want to rule out any potential inciting infections. So this came up in the, the talk by Dr. Binion that oftentimes C. diff can be the trigger for a severe colitis flare. So we want to make sure that we're getting stool studies for C. diff. And why is that? Well. C. diff, uh, we know that UC patients are higher risk for C. diff, and being on immune suppression can increase their risk of C. diff twofold. Endoscopically, the appearance of C. diff in the setting of ulcerative colitis may not be what you expect C. diff to be. You don't always get those pseudomembranes. It can look, for all intents and purposes, just like ulcerative colitis. So we need to be making sure that we're getting those stool samples right at the beginning of the hospitalization, which is sometimes a challenge uh, in the emergency room. Now, what does it mean if a severe ulcerative colitis patient has C. diff? Well, we have some good data from population-based studies in Canada. On the right here, you see, clicker, but uh, on the right, you see that 
you see patients that have a C. diff diagnosis have significantly increased risk of needing a colectomy. So at one year, 18% versus 5%, then going out three and five years, up to 30% of patients almost uh, will need a colectomy when it's associated with a C. diff infection. Additionally, you see patients who are hospitalized with C. diff, if they do go to surgery, they're at a much greater risk of postoperative complications relative to patients who go to surgery not in the setting of C. diff with an odds ratio of 4.84. And lastly, having C. diff in combination with UC has been associated with increased five-year all-cause mortality. So these are possibly some of the highest-risk patients among the high-risk cohort of severe UC patients. Now, in terms of treatment of C. diff, when it's there in the presence of severe UC, all these patients should be treated with vancomycin. This is data out of Cedars-Sinai, where they looked at uh, retrospectively comparisons of treating with oral vancomycin versus oral metronidazole, and they found significantly decreased rates of 30-day readmissions in patients who were treated with vancomycin, and there was a a trend towards decreased rates of colectomy and decreased rates of three-month readmission as well. So at this point, I think most of the guidelines have been updated to say that any inpatient with UC who has C. diff should be treated with oral vancomycin. Now, the next step is obviously to do a sigmoidoscopy, and this is going to have a lot of prognostic significance for us in terms of staging the patient. Uh, Of note, when you do a sigmoidoscopy in a severe UC patient, you can do it unprepped. You don't have to make them suffer through a prep if they're having 10 to 20 bowel movements a day. Um, you should make sure to use minimal air insufflation when you do the procedure because they're going to be higher risk uh, potentially for perforation, especially if you see deep ulcers. And so what is the information that we can gain from doing the sigmoidoscopy? Well, this is a study that was published in the 1990s before we had, obviously, anti-TNF therapy. However, I think a lot of the points still hold true. If you see deep, extensive ulcers, these are patients that have in that era, a 93% chance of failing IV steroids and going to surgery. So still today, deep ulcers, that puts in my mind this is somebody that likely is going to fail IV steroids and may be at higher risk for failing uh, our rescue therapy after IV steroids. Additionally, mucosal detachment was associated with uh, a 30% failure of IV steroids, large mucosal abrasions, about a quarter failed IV steroids, and then well-like ulcers. Additionally, when we do the sigmoidoscopy, it gives us an opportunity to potentially biopsy for CMV to rule that out as a cause of disease flare. It's been reported that up to 10% of patients admitted with severe UC that the inciting event may be a CMV infection. So if the patient has steroid refractory UC and they're on any kind of immune suppression, you should be taking biopsies and specifying that it be checked for tissue immunohistochemistry for CMV. Now, if the patient's responding to infliximab, cyclosporine, or their other treatment, and they're CMV positive, it doesn't mean that you have to treat the CMV. It's probably just an innocent bystander and more an indicator of severe disease. However, if they're not responding to their medical therapy and the CMV is positive, this is a situation where you're going to want to treat the CMV. And we can use various clinical parameters. You can use a serum PCR to assess response to therapy. And typically, the response will be three weeks of uh, gancyclovir, starting with IV gancyclovir in the hospital. In rare situations where you have severe systemic CMV, you may have to stop their immunosuppressive therapy in order to adequately treat the CMV. The second piece of that day one uh, uh, management in severe UC is preparing the patient for what's to come in the hospitalization. 
And so it's very critical on that first day to send all the lab work you may need to start their rescue therapy, whether it be anti-TNF therapy or cyclosporine, because you don't want this to be the delay three or four days later in being able to give them a rescue therapy. So that means check their quantiferon status right at the onset, get a PPD if they're not on any uh, steroids already, check their chest x-ray, their hep B serologies. You can get the TPMT if you're thinking about putting them on combination once they leave the hospital, and checking a cholesterol specifically for using cyclosporine. Many of our severe UC patients come into the hospital malnourished, and that could be in the setting of food avoidance because they associate the food with causing their increased diarrhea. There have been a, a few small studies looking at enteral feeding versus bowel rest and TPN, and actually enteral feeding is shown to be better than using TPN in the case of severe UC. One of the studies showed actually increased albumin through enteral feeding as opposed to TPN. So you want to make sure you're feeding the patient enterally. And then our practice is always to get a surgeon consulted early in the hospitalization course. And I think what's important is how you frame that consult with the surgeon. You want to tell the surgeon, look, this patient, if, if medical therapy seems like the way you're going to go, you want to tell the surgeon, okay, look, I'm bringing you on board now to sort of discuss what the possibilities are with the patient in terms of surgery, what the expectation should be, but that we're going to start medical therapy so that they don't come in and necessarily scare the patient. In the same way, you're going to tell the patient before the surgeon comes in that you're just having them to, to follow closely because they are sick, and at any point in the hospitalization, they could take a turn for the worse. The last piece of that day one management is management of the medications. So patients can have a paradoxical reaction to 5-ASA where that could be the inciting event for their disease flare. So if a patient's coming in with a severe flare, it's worthwhile to stop their 5-ASA therapy to see if that is potentially the trigger for their flare. Similar situation with non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. We want to avoid any, any medications which may slow gut motility and precipitate a toxic megacolon, so that means avoiding narcotics and anticholinergic medications. Because of the severe diarrhea patients are having, we want to replete their electrolytes, give them IV fluids. There have been a few randomized controlled trials looking at the role for prophylactic antibiotics, and there's been uh, no finding that showed that you should be using prophylactic antibiotics, but I would put the caveat there for if you have a patient who's febrile, has peritoneal signs, or very deep ulcers on their sigmoidoscopy, you could consider using prophylactic antibiotics. And similarly, if you have a high suspicion for C. diff, it may be worthwhile to start the oral vancomycin before your C. diff result comes back. And lastly, you want to make sure you're giving venous thromboembolism prophylaxis. And so again, this gets to that point of what are the preventative things we can do to stop patients from having a, a complication. And really, venous thromboembolism prophylaxis is one of those because severe UC patients are probably the highest risk patients for venous thromboembolism. This is data now showing that patients with both ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease are at higher risk for VTE, and that occurs across all age groups, not just older patients. And then we have data from the General Practice Research Database, which shows that in the context of flare is the highest risk for VTE with a hazard ratio of 8.4. Now, I bring this up because when U.S. gastroenterologists have been surveyed about their practices with regard to venous, venous thromboembolism prophylaxis, they're not good. Uh, only 29% of gastroenterologists were aware of any recommendations addressing pharmacologic prophylaxis, 
and then only 35 responded that they would give pharmacologic prophylaxis to a hospitalized patient with severe UC, probably because they're worried that this patient's coming in with significant bleeding and they don't want to give an anticoagulant. But in reality, these are the highest risk patients. So now we're going to move on to the current therapeutic options for hospitalized severe UC. And still, IV steroids are the first-line therapy for the severe UC a patient who's admitted. Now, in terms of the, the steroid therapies available, there's no randomized controlled trial comparing different steroid regimens, whether it be hydrocortisone versus methylprednisolone. There's no incremental benefit to a total dose of methylprednisolone over 60 milligrams total daily. And there's been no study that showed a proven benefit to continuous IV dosing of steroids versus daily dosing of IV steroids. And while we're hopeful that IV steroids will work, we know that up to a third of patients are not going to respond to IV steroids and ultimately require other medical rescue therapy. However, before I talk about the other, med the other rescue therapies, we should realize that there are some patients that we don't want to offer rescue therapy to at all. So the indications for surgery at this point would be massive unrelenting hemorrhage, toxic megacolon with impending or frank perforation. If a patient has coexisting colorectal cancer or dysplasia, there's no point to trying to give them an immunosuppressive therapy. They just need a colectomy. Patients with longstanding colitis with intractability who have already failed multiple outpatient medications, this just may be where their colon is burnt out and it's time for surgery. And then another consideration would be medical noncompliance, specifically in the setting of cyclosporine use because of the amount of monitoring that's needed for cyclosporine. So if you are in the two-thirds of patients that may respond to IV steroids, uh, well, taking a step back, after that day one hospitalization, day two and day three, we're going to continue the patient on IV steroids. We're going to do daily symptom evaluation where we're going to be monitoring the patient's frequency and urgency of stool. So our practice is we have stool charts at the bedside with the patient where they're writing down every time they have a bowel movement, whether there's blood, the formation of the stool. And then we also ask them to write down when they're having severe abdominal pain, because usually abdominal pain in ulcerative colitis is a marker of very end-stage disease and possibly needing surgery. We're going to be checking daily inflammatory markers, so using that C-reactive protein if it was elevated on day one to assess their response to therapy. And then if they are having worsening pain symptoms, using abdominal x-rays to check for uh, dilation. So day four is what I consider to be medical rescue therapy decision day. At this point, we've had the full three days of IV steroids, and this is when potentially we can be deciding whether they're going to fly with steroids or they're going to fail. So if you take certain tweets out of context, they can make some sense. So here's a quote. Part of being a winner is knowing when enough is enough. Sometimes you have to give up the fight and walk away and move on to something that's more productive. And that's really the case in severe UC. So this is data from the nationwide inpatient sample where they looked at the association of the number of days in the hospital on an admission for ulcerative colitis with postoperative complications and mortality. And so when patients are in the hospital for over six days prior to their surgery, they're at increased risk for morbidity. And then when they're in the hospital for over 11 days uh, prior to their surgery, they're at significantly increased risk of mortality with an adjusted odds ratio of 3.18. So it's really important to make timely decisions in the severe UC patients. And we shouldn't have them sitting around on IV steroids for one or two weeks before we're moving on to something uh, that may be more productive. And so what are the predictors that we can use to determine who's failed IV steroids at day three? 
so there are a few different studies, and some of these were alluded to in earlier lectures. But Travis, back in 96, reported that there was an 85% failure rate of IV steroids if patients were still having over eight bowel movements per day or a C-reactive protein over 45 on day three. And a more recent study used similar sort of indicators. So you can look at that stool frequency by using the stool charts to determine if they're having over eight to nine stools per day, they're, they're failing IV steroids. And also albumin is a very important marker of uh, medication failure, and we can talk a little bit about how albumin will predict response in terms of infliximab therapy. So if the patient wound up as one of the IV steroid responders, you're in luck. Uh, you can continue their IV steroids for up to five days, transition them to prednisone 40 milligrams per day. There's no indication for using over 40 milligrams per day oral steroids. Uh, you may want to consider observing them in the hospital for one day after that transition to oral steroids in case they uh, should regress. And then you want to make sure you have a plan for a steroid-sparing strategy to either be initiated during the hospitalization or within one to two weeks of discharge. However, if they're in the one-third of patients that aren't going to respond to IV steroids, there's only two available options medically uh, for inpatient. That's infliximab and cyclosporin. There is no role for adalimumab, golimumab, tofacitinib, vetalizumab, or fecal transplant in inpatients with severe UC. Now, I think in the past, cyclosporin had been our uh, primary option for the severe UC patient, and obviously with the advent of infliximab, there's been a shift more towards infliximab, uh, but I think it's worthwhile to talk about cyclosporin and some of the the key points in management. If you want more detailed information on how to use cyclosporin, uh, you can refer back to Asher Kornblut's article back in the Red Journal from the 90s, but also University of Michigan has a severe UC protocol online that really goes through cyclosporin use well. But the key points to me are you have to have a maintenance plan. So that could be thiopurines or now vetalizumab as your maintenance option with uh, cyclosporin. You want to avoid use in those with active infection or recent anti-TNF therapy with detectable levels. So our practice would be if they were on a calcineurin inhibitor that we would check levels before starting a TNF, and that may be a patient that you could safely uh, start in. A 2 milligram per kilogram per day starting dose has a similar response to a 4 mg per kg per day starting dose with less toxicity. And you're going to be monitoring levels of cyclosporine and adjusting doses based on that. You need to minimize seizure risk by maintaining a cholesterol above 120 and maintaining a normal serum magnesium. You monitor renal dysfunction, and if the creatinine rises by 30%, you have to adjust the dose, and you want to consider PCP prophylaxis. Now, there is some thought now that we can use uh, cyclosporin in the inpatient severe UC and then transition them to vetalizumab. This is data out of University of Chicago. Limited number of patients. They only had 11 UC patients in their cohort. And I think uh, John put this data up before. But about at the one-year mark, there was a 55% response and then a 45% steroid-free remission, which is not terrible when you're dealing with severe UC, uh, but still not exactly what we would want. So I think the, the real big shift in terms of using infliximab over cyclosporin came after the CISIF study. So this was the cyclosporin versus infliximab in severe acute UC, refractory to IV steroids. Uh, this was done by the Jetad in France, and they compared infliximab 5 mg per kg standard dosing at 0 to 6 to, to cyclosporin 2 mg per kg per day. And I think it's important that we understand what the dosing was in that study. And their outcome was treatment failure for any reason. 
So it could be that they just lost response to therapy. It could be that they required surgery. Any treatment failure at three months, that was the primary outcome. And it was a non-inferiority study, and they found no significant difference between cyclosporin and infliximab. But what, what strikes me always in looking at this slide is that the failure rate was 60% at three months. So this is still pretty much the sickest population that we're going to deal with, and we're not, we don't have the, the best treatments yet for how to take care of this population. Now, reassuringly, they also looked at day seven response rates, and it was about 85% response for both cyclosporin and infliximab. So I think at this point, when, when people saw this data, they thought infliximab's easier to use, and that's probably why you have more people use infliximab over cyclosporin. There's just a higher level of monitoring with cyclosporin, and if you're not in an expert center where it's used more often, it, it's a little prohibitive. Now, long-term, what are the outcomes of these patients? Um, in, the, in the short term, about 20% of patients in both the cyclosporin group and the infliximab group wound up going to colectomy, and there was no significant difference in the Kaplan-Meier curve. Recently, they published in GUT their long-term outcomes from the CISIF study, and they found that one year, about 30% of patients in both groups wound up needing colectomy, and then five years out, about 39% in the cyclosporin group and 35% in the infliximab group wound up needing colectomy. So why is this? Why are we so bad at treating these severe UC patients? And really, the question comes down to specifically with infliximab, are we using the right dosing? Uh, does it make sense in our sickest patients with the greatest inflammatory burden to give the same dose of infliximab as the moderate outpatient who's getting five mg per kg at week 026? And there's been multiple studies now suggesting that there's increased clearance in this sick population. So I'll show two of them here. On the left, there's a gastro article from 2015 where they measured fecal infliximab levels in the few days after their initial induction dose. And what you see in the red are the non-responders, and in the blue are the clinical responders. And at day one, after their infliximab dose, the non-responders had significantly greater fecal infliximab levels, giving rise to this theory that they're just pouring infliximab through their stool. Then a second study was published in APT in 2016, looking at trough levels of infliximab at the second induction dose on day 14. And what you see in the blue is that patients with acute severe UC had significantly lower trough levels compared to patients with moderately severe uh, disease. And, and when Marla referred to that level of 25 at the day 14 dose, you see that in these acute severe patients, basically all of them were below a level of 25 uh, at that day 14. Then just a few months ago, this publication came out in JCC. This is a popula population pharmacokinetics model out of Mount Sinai, Toronto. And what they showed, they, they nicely showed this rapid clearance in the severe UC patients. So if you look to the two charts on the right, you see the half-life in the responders in red is much higher than the half-life in the failures in blue. And then the clearance, the clearance in responders is much less compared to the clearance in the failures in blue. So Clearly, these patients with severe UC, high inflammatory burden, are clearing out their infliximab quickly, and maybe the 5 mg per kg uh, standard induction is not the right therapy for them. So this has given thought to the use of accelerated dosing in severe UC, and we have a few publications looking retrospectively at hospital experiences with this. The first one on the left is the Gibson study that was published in 2015, and they defined accelerated dosing as any dosing greater than the 5 mg per kg 026. So that could be getting 
5 mg per kg at 0.14 or 0.15. Um, and what they found is that in the 15 patients who had accelerated dosing, there were decreased short-term colectomy rates. So this was just looking at uh, 30 days. But when they looked out beyond three months, the colectomy rates were no different between the accelerated dosing group and the standard dosing group. So that uh, ultimately there was no difference. And this, of course, is a retrospective study, so there's a lot, lot we don't know about it. Then more recently, we published, uh, Shelja Shah published our experience at Mount Sinai, and we specifically looked at, is there a difference between giving an upfront dose of 5 mg per kg versus an upfront dose of 10 mg per kg in the initial induction? And while we didn't show any difference ultimately in the short-term colectomy rate between the two, there were differences in the need for accelerated dosing. So patients in the 5 mg per, gr- per kg group more often needed subsequent doses in the hospital. Nobody in the 10 mg per per kg group wound up getting additional doses in the hospital. The length of stay was shorter in the 10 mg per kg group than the 5 mg per kg group. So I think this is really something that needs to be studied prospectively so we can get more information. There was also a recent publication by Ashwin Anantakrishnan and CGH where they took a multi-center retrospective series as well as a meta-analysis and they also did not show any difference in colectomy outcomes at various time points with accelerated dosing versus standard dosing. However, when they did look at the subset with 10 mg per kg initial uh, treatment, they saw a trend towards decreasing colectomy rates. Um, In terms of what the experts do, I don't want you to focus on the different regimens here. This was a study of the IOIBD, so it's basically our top experts in the world and how they dose in severe UC. And the key here is no more than 25% had agreement on any one dosing strategy. So this is really, you know, still up in the air that we need guidance from prospective studies in terms of dosing and severe UC. So in terms of my practice for dosing infliximab and severe UC, if patients have a low albumin, a high CRP, deep ulcers, these are the group that may need high dose, meaning 10 mg per kg upfront therapy or accelerated infliximab dosing. I don't discharge patients early after an initial infliximab dose in severe UC in case they need subsequent additional doses. I monitor inflammatory markers closely and if their response plateaus or their clinical symptoms worsen after the initial response, I consider early redosing. I use caution with accelerated dosing in high-risk patients, meaning older patients, those on extended courses of high-dose steroids, or those with significant comorbidities. And if the objective signs and symptoms in your gut tell you it's time for surgery, you don't want to delay the inevitable with additional doses. Uh, To that end, there are situations where you could consider a second salvage therapy, so either following cyclosporin after infliximab or vice versa. This is data from the JATAD where they looked at those specific situations. And at one year, they had only a 40% colectomy-free rate in that group. And it's worth noting that 10 to 20% of patients had uh, significant infections uh, when having back-to-back salvage therapy. So I think cyclosporin washes out pretty quickly. So if you're considering infliximab after cyclosporin, that may be okay. The, vi- the reverse situation, I would have a little more caution about. Ultimately, we're saving lives, not colon. So we have to keep that in perspective when we're treating these patients. So in summary, we should have an action plan beginning on day one to achieve stable control. We want to rule out other precipitating factors like infections such as C. diff and CMV. We want to make decisions on IV steroid failure no later than day four. Uh, In terms of choosing cyclosporin versus infliximab, it's based on severity, other risk factors, ease of use, and then consider surgery early and often at each juncture of decision-making.